Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I gotta tell you something, people. I saw my guest play the drums for Journey at the Spectrum in Philadelphia in 1982. I remember I went with my friend Steve Polinski, and and you know back back then I knew him as a drummer's Journey, but he's done so much, and and he's the highlight. Is a book, Modern Drummers, Volume Seven, a print book, is all about him. His book, Vital Information, his group Vital Information is just excellent. And he's had such an amazing career. And if I read right, I think he started playing drums when he was two. I'm not sure. That might have been misinformation. But my guest is the one and only Steve Smith. How you doing, Steve? I'm good, Steve. Thank you. Thanks for that nice introduction. Um, as far as two, well, it is true that my parents bought me a little toy drum set for my I think Christmas when I was two, which didn't last very long, you know, probably lasted a few weeks or something like that. But then I really started when I was nine. Did something make you gravitate towards the drums? Was there something like, did you see someone or you heard and you just, you felt the rhythm? I mean, how did this whole career? Well, my, yeah, my earliest um, feeling about the drums came from, the 4th of July parades that I attended when I was a kid growing up in Whitman, Massachusetts, a little town south of Boston. And we'd go um, to the parade and there would be a marching band with, you know, with the drum line, there would be a bass drum and snare drums. And it, it spoke to me, it moved me. And I think that along with you know, my mom had an inclination to like drums. It was probably her that bought me that set when I was two. And we had some Benny Goodman records with Gene Krupa playing drums. And so by the time uh, fourth grade came around, 1963, there was an assembly and a local music store had had a someone there demonstrating the instruments. And at the end of the assembly, you could sign up for an instrument. So I signed up for the snare drum. And that's how the career started. I mean, it, it's yeah. really amazing. So, because I, I think, you know, at that age nine, and you've done this your whole life, like me, when I was nine, I, I probably wanted to be an astronaut. And when I was 11, I figured out I was, I was afraid of heights. So that wasn't going to work. But for you, you just, <laughs> you just started. So, so where do you go from when, when you're nine? Because, you know, I, and I, as I've read on you, you know, you're, you're very iconic, very respected. You were probably a, a beyond the curve of a 9, 10, and 11-year-old, I'm guessing, when you were younger playing? Well, not really. I think that my, to my good fortune, my parents found me a private instructor. So when I started drumming, it was literally with a pair of sticks and a practice pad and weekly lessons, weekly private lessons. And I really liked my drum teacher who was an older drummer from the swing era. And so I did the weekly lessons and and slowly got my technique together. I learned the drum rudiments. I learned how to read music. It was a pretty like legitimate, let's say, a legitimate way of, of learning the drums, like first starting with just hand technique, practice pad for a couple of years, then a snare drum, about a year immersive on just snare drum before I got an entire drum set. And then my 
introduction to the drum set was playing swing rhythms, playing like the rhythms of of the big bands, you know, the jazz, jazz, my teacher was a jazz drummer, so he taught me in that style and I just gravitated to that. So I, I did enjoy the lessons. I did practice when I was a kid and, and learned the process of, you know, here's your assignment and then you got six days to improve this and, and then present it to the teacher in a week. And somehow that all just clicked for me. So I did progress and I, I developed abilities with that structure. How important do you think it is? Like I, I've talked to a lot of actors too, who are very, you know, a lot of older actors are saying how the young kids today really don't go to take theater class. And to them, that was what it was all about. And that made them develop. How important do you think it is as a young drummer to really learn the fundamentals instead of just beating. I mean, do you think it's really, really important? Because I mean, you you play so many different genres. It had to be help you a lot. Yeah, there there's no way I could have had the career that I have without that kind of background. And so, along with the lessons, of course, it was about reading music. So, um, for me, it would. I do have friends that got a drum set and joined a band. You know, and that was also what was going on in those days as, as well. Uh, but in general, without without like the specific lessons and, and really working on on your drumming, it would be rare that the person that could develop their abilities to, you know, to a high degree and and then become a professional musician. I think like another part of really the the beauty of having those lessons and learning how to read music and especially, you know, in that time period, which is, I graduated high school in 72. So like a lot of this stuff happened in the late sixties, early seventies. By reading music, I was able to join a musician's union and start to work at a pretty young age. Uh, You know, before, even before I was out of high school and the musicians I were working with were generally older than me. So, so my peers that didn't know how to read music were, you know, they could only play with their with the other fifteen and sixteen year old kids, you know. Where, you know, I had the opportunity to to work with musicians of all ages. Now that that helps one grow as a as a budding musician because you get feedback and you you really can can develop and and so I you know I, I took a very a different route than let's you know uh, let's say a musician trying to just join a band and and make it you know that wasn't my concept my concept was to become a good musician and to be a working musician for for a lifetime and that's in fact what i've ended up doing now you went to berkeley college of music how how important was that to you because that's you know that's such a prestigious place you know <laughs> people hear about it and and it's something that at any time it was that just your thirst for knowledge and learning why you went, because it sounds like you were working in high school already. And, and a lot of, you know, 16, 16, 17 year old, 18 would be like, I don't need to go to college. I'm, I'm working as a musician. What made you opt to go to Berkeley? Well, I did want to go to college, like the family I grew up in, that that was an idea that, you know, all of us would go to college. So, um, and I was, I, I didn't feel ready to be, out on my own as a professional musician at that time. I was still 
and needed a lot of development. And but Berkeley was my number one choice, and of course it was close by, um, so that was nice. That was convenient. But the school had an incredible energy about it, especially at that time, and. <clears throat> I think my time there was well spent and it was a 50-50 learning experience between the actual teachers and the class classes and the other musicians that were there. So I had very good private instructors there, a drummer named Gary Chafee, another drummer, Alan Dawson. I enjoyed the the classes, like learning about harmony and arranging. But after hours, this, we as students, we would get together and jam and, and or play gigs. And just that constant immersion in playing music is, is how one develops musicianship. It's one thing to develop skill on your instrument, but then to take that skill and to become a musician, that's something that no one can teach you. That you can only teach yourself and you can only learn it by doing it. And so that was really the beauty of going to Berkeley is the peer group that I was with, a very motivated, high-level peer group. Some of the best young musicians from around the world were gathering there. And in those years, there, there wasn't much choice when it came to jazz education. Now it's it's like everywhere, you know, you can go to almost any college anywhere and there'll be some jazz education. But in those years, I think there was about three or four schools in the entire USA that you could go to to study jazz. So the, the point of that is that so many good musicians were attracted to be there. And and that was a, an incredibly good experience. And then it also led to connections. You know, one person would leave and then and then get another get, get a gig and then they need a drummer. And, you know, and then I could I got a call and, and it just that that helped immensely getting my career off the ground. It's funny. Any people don't understand is in any business networking is so important. And building yes. that network. And you don't understand. I mean, I know musicians who, like you said, someone leaves, they go, oh, yeah, well, such and such will film for me. And then it's just, uh, it keeps going. So now you ended up, when you started to play with Jean-Luc Ponte, how did that come about? All right. Well, Jean-Luc Ponte is a great uh, jazz fusion violinist. And uh, he needed a drummer. He, he had a very good drummer that I just quit at the last minute. Uh, right before a tour and um, and so we needed a drummer so we did these cattle call auditions he did a did um, did one in LA and one in New York and the bass player that I had was good friends with it's named Jeff Berlin I was playing a lot with him in Boston Jean-Luc called Jeff Berlin to be the bass player in the New York auditions and Jeff just recommended that I go and do the audition. And so I did do that and ended up getting the gig. Is that intimidating when you go and you're auditioning with all these people and it's a cattle call? And then yeah. he's, he's a legendary name. And 
all of a sudden you're this you're you're young you're young guy and all of a sudden you're going oh my god i'm going to be on tour i mean what goes through your mind at that point i mean when you went into those auditions were you like this gig this job is mine or were you like i'm just going to show my talent and they'll choose me it was i just did the best job i could do and and it was well, I was sitting in the hallway with about seven other drummers and we just go in one at a time. Uh, but he put music in front of me and I could read. So I sight read the music and then we played. We played some odd time signatures. He wanted to see if I could play in seven and five. And and then we just and it was just trio it was violin, bass and, and drums. And so I did the audition. And I mean, I was still a student at Berkeley, so I wasn't. You know, I just went to the audition for an experience, really. And uh, and I didn't really know Jean-Luc's music. I had heard him before because I had heard the Mahavishnu Orchestra, and he was in the second incarnation of the Mahavishnu Orchestra. But I didn't know his music. And, of course, the music that I auditioned with was, it was a, a, his new record, but it wasn't released yet. So, you know, I didn't, I just went and played and and I was fortunate that he liked me. And so I did get the gig and I did leave Berkeley in my seventh semester to go on tour with them. What is that like going on tour? Like a new, you're a kid from Boston, all of a sudden you're going on tour. I mean, it has to be fun, but it has to be something, a very new yeah, that experience. Was a big, that was like a real game changer, I'd say, as far as when I was at Berkeley, most of the musicians I were playing with were acoustic in nature it was like big bands small groups with saxophone players trumpets upright bass and i played in a way where i could play with acoustic musicians and i didn't play very loud you know in general because that's not what that you know when you're playing in a small club you you, you learn how to control your volume and uh but when i played with jean-luc ponty that was it was like a jazz group that played it with the energy and the sound of a rock band. So it was very, uh, I had to really develop like this stronger side of my playing to play that music. And, and the other musicians that were in the group were a few years ahead of me in development. And they, I, well, the first thing I noticed is just how great they sounded every night. They were very consistent. So, so being a young sort of ideal, ide you know, a student with these ideals of improvisation and taking a lot of risks. And and I wasn't thinking about consistency in my playing. It was more adventurousness. But I learned that there's there's a way to harness and discipline my playing where I could be um, consistent each night, play what the guys in the band needed to hear and so it was like that was a game changer because I went from, let's say, being kind of semi-professional playing around Boston, little gigs, but then being on the big stage with Jean-Luc was, was a, a big, big change. And we toured the world, well, the world at that time, meaning uh, all over the U.S. and, and Europe. And, and I made my first album with him. It's called Enigmatic Oceans, a very good jazz fusion record. So that was that was a big deal. Now, did that touring, as you said, they played with like a rock attitude somewhat. Mm -hmm. Did that prepare you for your move in with Journey? Because once again, you're a jazz, 
you know, that's what you were learning on jazz, and then but you had that experience. How did the journey experience come to you, and and were you prepared? Because then they ended up just being the you guys were like the biggest act in the world at one time. Well, um, I did make a lot of adjustments while playing with Jean Luc Ponty. One of them was buying a really big <laughs> double bass drum set. And that was his request because when, <clears throat> when I started with him, I had a smaller jazz kit, but he wanted a big kit. The way he said it was like a Billy Cobham kit, you know, and Billy Cobham was the drummer with Mahavishnu and he had this big double bass kit. And uh, so I, I got a big drum set like that. And I, and that took a lot of uh, energy to play was a real different playing style, but I liked it. I took to it. Like you said, I was young and it was super fun <laughs> to play like that. I was 22 and then 23 years old. So I really got into that. And eventually um, he changed the lineup. So I ended up moving to Los Angeles in 1970, um, 78. I started playing with him in, in the fall of 76 and all through 77. And then early 78, I moved to LA. And then I heard about different auditions and I go to auditions and I auditioned with a rock guitarist named Ronnie Montrose, who lived in the San Francisco Bay Area. And what he was doing at that time was uh, like a, a rock instrumental band. And so he wanted a, a like a jazz rock fusion kind of drummer. And uh, so I auditioned for him and got that gig. So I, it was like similar, somewhat similar to what I was doing with Jean-Luc Ponty. And if, if I was interested to play. So and then as that as as that happened, he was Ronnie Montrose became the opening act for Journey's first headline tour. And that was in 1978. It was about a three month tour of theaters, not really you know, Journey's first headline tour. It was the first tour with Steve Perry in the band. And the, the size of the venue was about 2,500 seats, which interestingly was about the same venues I was playing with Jean-Luc Ponty. And um, so we, as Ronnie Montrose, opened for Journey on that three-month tour. It was the Infinity Tour. They had just put out that album, Infinity. And basically at the end of the tour, they asked me to join the group. Now that that well, first of all, that must just show a uh, a lot of confidence and a lot of it must make you feel as a drummer, you know, like I'm I made the right decision. <laughs> I'm really good because now as you join them, they just start getting bigger. What is that like as you go as a performer? Because once again, drummers drummers always fascinate me. Why I always say drummers fascinate me because you guys use your whole body. You use your feet. Your arms, I mean, guitarists are great, but you guys sit there, and I always feel like you guys have a intellectual level because you're, you're using your whole brain. I mean, it's it's coordination. But what's it, what's it like? Because people do focus on the drummers. When you're with Journey, and you're going from 2,500 seaters and going bigger and bigger and bigger, how does your, not your style, because you're a trained drummer, how does your showmanship change? Like, does it... Do you sit there and all of a sudden say, okay, now I really have to be play bigger, bigger than life because I am the drummer. And I always say the drummers and a bassist are like in baseball, the second baseman and the shortstop. Without them, you know, everything goes through and nothing happens. So what was that like for you? What, was, what kind of learning experience was that? 
Oh, well, I, I did have to adjust my drumming a lot to, to, to make the, the music in that band work. So you, you have to, you know, think that the situations I were in, I was in before were instrumental. So in an instrumental situation, there's a lot more room for improvisation and for people playing. Now with Journey, it was a, a, a like a you know a vocal oriented rock pop band, and I had worked very little with singers. And the singers that I had played with in in Boston were sometimes they you know they weren't even pro singers. It would be the saxophone player would just sing a song or whatever you know. So I had never worked with a really great singer, so I had no idea really how to support a vocalist. And, and Steve Perry, in a way, trained me. He was uh, a singing drummer when he was young, and then eventually stopped playing the drums and just focused on singing. So he was very clear about what he needed uh, as a, from a drummer in order to soar over the top of the music the way he did and do what he did. So, so my drumming went from being improvisationally based to compositionally based. So I learned how to come up with drum parts that made a lot of sense for the song. And then they were fixed after a while. You know, there'd be a, a groove for the verse, a groove for the chorus. Sometimes the fills I played on the record would end up being just the fills that I have to play every night. So it, it, it's a very different concept musically to be in a band like that. So so that was a big shift for me, but but I was open to it. It was just all interesting to me. It was all like learning about a new kind of music that I had listened to, but hadn't really played at that professional level. And and as far as entertaining and, you know, looking bigger than life, that, that kind of stuff did happen but it just came kind of naturally to to be in a group where we'd be in front of an audience and 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 it occurred naturally is the only way i can put it because you know we did go from 2500 seaters to then 10,000 to 15 20,000 even up to in the early 80s into like the 60 70 90,000 people sometimes in these large outdoor stadiums. So it happened in a way that was kind of organic and just everything developed step by step. So I don't know. I acclimated to it somehow. How does how does it change your life? I mean, once again, you're in a huge, huge band and you're, you're a guy drumming his whole life. You're a guy from Boston, the Boston area, and I'm from New Jersey. We have... We have a certain, you know, strong work ethic, work ethic and all that. But then all of a sudden, you're in one of the biggest bands in the world. I mean, do you start buying cars? Do you get, do you sit there and go, I'm, I'm making money? I mean, how does it change your life at that point? Yeah, it's, it's a pretty, yeah, pretty big change as far as like, I, you know, I could, one of the first things I wanted to do was buy a house, you know, so I was able to do that. That was, that was important to me is to have that kind of security uh, to, to be a homeowner. So, you know, I, we weren't home all that much, but <laughs> that was an important thing. Cars were never a big deal for me. So I did get a car, but it was, you know, nothing, 
no sports car or anything like that. Pretty functional. In fact, I had to buy a van, you know, to move my drums around. <laughs> so, you know, so the, the, the main thing for me, I wanted to live within my means and and have security. And I also knew that this type of thing, you know, doesn't last forever. And And I had other aspirations. So, yeah, it was pretty exciting and it was kind of you know it was it was a lot to deal with as a as a young person but um but i do think part of what kept me grounded throughout that time is i still played with a lot of jazz musicians when i had off time and <laughs> so the idea that you know the music that i played with journey i took it seriously and i learned a lot from it but I still enjoyed interacting with my friends from Boston. I met a whole different peer group of jazz musicians in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I was playing with them. So, so in a way, music kept me grounded from getting too far out there with the rock experience. What was what is your? I want to talk about vital information, but what is your? What was your? What is one of your fondest memories of your time with Journey? When, in that in that huge time, I mean, what is what was one of your fondest memories? Oh, I don't know. There's 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 so many. I mean, one one thing that comes to mind was that was actually kind of interesting and humbling is that we opened for the Rolling Stones on a few dates, and and it was at a time when we were starting to get very popular. It was in I think it was in '81. The the Escape album had just come out. And um, Bill Graham put together a lot of, um, he put together a Rolling Stones tour and he had Prince open some shows, you know, he had us open shows. And so we were feeling, I think we were feeling like, you know, we're doing pretty good, but then we ended up opening for the Stones and there was just something about opening for the Stones and witnessing what they, where they were at it was it was humbling because as big as we thought we were you know they they just had this other they occupied a different space that was so above where we were at in popularity that it was pretty humbling and the rolling stones audience in fact didn't really want to hear us so they gave us a hard time it like at jfk stadium you know it was like, i was i was i was i was at the jfk show but the problem with jfk because it was george thorogood then it was were you, you. Were there for? Were you there? Yes, that? for the Stones. It was JFK. It was it was right. George Thorogood. Then yes. you guys. Yeah. But the one problem with that show was it was just so damn hot. It was one of those unexpected hots, and I think everyone was yeah. just getting ornery. And back then, I remember when we went to the show. I went with two high school buddies. They opened up. It was like seven in the morning, and back then people could take alcohol in the concert. It wasn't like eighteen bucks a beer, so people all just yeah. ran in and sat. But I enjoyed it, just so you know, because I loved your music. So I was, it was good for me. But it was, I still remember it was such a hot day because I saw you there yeah. and I saw you at the Spectrum. So and we had a couple more. We had a couple more shows with them. So we learned like just keep it short, keep the set short, and play, play the hits, and then get off the stage. <laughs> now you left in '85. Why did you leave the first time? Well, that's you know a, a pretty long story, but the essentially. Um, Steve Perry really wanted to change the direction of the group 
and felt as though he would rather have studio musicians in the band, you know, or studio musicians on the record and on tour. And, 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 and Ross, he let Ross and I go. So when that happens, because you've been so busy, you know, you probably just automatically moved into doing something. Tell me about vital information, because as I said, I follow journey. I followed you and I, that's why I reached out to you. And then, as I said, I told you earlier, when I started listening to you last week, I invite, it's great. Cause to me, that's music. It's your, it's free form. You, you can tell your guys, I don't want to use the word craftsmanship, but you can tell you're all so well-trained. Tell me about vital information. Cause that start, you guys started in a very, very early on, right? Well, in fact, I, the, the two, my main collaborators with the original incarnation of Vital Information, Tim Landers and Dave Lachesky, they were uh, musicians that I met while I was a high school student. And so we started playing in the, in the early 70s, just playing gigs around Boston. So that was, you know, those were people I stayed in touch with and continued to play with um, as, you know, I was in the early years of playing with Journey. And then after being in Journey for a few years and the band sold a lot of records, I was able to get a, a contract with Columbia Records. And um, and that's how I, you know, that's where that first Vital Information album comes from. 19, we recorded it in January, 1983. And it was, you know, thought of as a solo record in a way, you know, I, I made a record, Neil Sean made a record with Jan Hammer, Steve Perry went out and did his solo record. And, uh, and then I ended up made the record, then did the tour for Frontiers. The album Frontiers came out in February of 1983. And then September, October, I toured the U.S. with Vital Information for the first time. And coming up next year, it's going to be 40 years that I've kept a band together. Not the same band, but had a band called Vital Information. And I don't even know how many records I've made, but at least 16 or so albums under that title what is it like as you said it's not the original members but it seems like when, when you listen to the, your music you know there's that trust you guys know each other what is it like as the drummer when the lineup does change do you have to establish trust in a newer person because you already knew the other people's chops you know what they can do and i'm sure i mean when you first start playing how does that work how do you guys all get on the same page so you feel free to as I said, the riff. Usually, I'll I'll know who the musician is. Like if some, let's say somebody's in the band and they're they're a bass player is too busy, you know, doing other projects or a guitarist, and they leave. You know, they say, "Look, it's been great, but I'm going to do this, you know, this other thing." And and you and I and I'm like out there noticing players that I think could be good in the band, um, and occasionally, like I'll be working with different people and and work with different musicians, and that's how I'll I'll meet them. So what I look for as as a band member or someone that I really enjoy playing with. Number one, somebody that's easy to be on tour with and someone that writes music because as a drummer i can write enough for you know a somewhat i can't write a whole album of 
material, but I can write some material. So I need collaborators. So that's what I look for, collaborators and people that are good writers and, and are wanting to make a mark and contribute musically to the group. And so that's, and, and then they're invested because they're writing, they're you know playing some of their own music or we're writing music together. So they're, they're enjoying the experience and I'm enjoying the experience. So, and every incarnation of vital information changes the music changes to be who we are as a group so it's it's different than let's say you know a rock group that has hit songs we don't have any hit songs we make music and it and it changes year to year what that music is and 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 the people that come to hear us come to hear us play music not to hear particular songs per se, but to hear just a, a very good musical experience. So in 95, you got back in Journey. How'd that happen? Was that something that you <laughs> wanted to do? Or is it seemed like, because you seem like you're, you were, you really dig, as I said, you really dig just the riffing. The, you know, the, that's, that seems like, you know, what is your, biggest passion that's something you love but so did, did they come back and say to you hey hey steve we want you back in the band or you know we're, we're point, what happened with that well the band had been broken up by that the, you know in 87 the band officially broke up and it was uh, at the insistence of columbia records actually they wanted a, an album and they they talked to Steve Perry and he agreed to do it. And there were a lot of conditions, but it just, it seemed like it was a good thing to do. In some ways, kind of heal the wounds of the, you know, how things went down in 85. And then, um, and it was good. It was a good situation. I think musically, that album is called Trial by Fire is a very good album. And we we went we got back together and and worked on the music collectively and, and made a very good album. So it it was it was Columbia Records really that that in, that pulled us together. Now when did your relationship with modern drummer magazine start? Because you have I mean, your volume seven. I mean, you know, think of how many you're you're the legends, you're Think how many drummers there ever been, and you're like legend. I mean, when did you? When did they start? When did they find you? Is it something that they call you and they go, "Hey, we saw you. We want you to write an article about you." When did your relationship start with them? <laughs> well, let me let me just explain to, for your listeners what what you're referring to with Volume Seven. Um, it's a modern drummer magazine. is has been around since something like 1977, <clears throat> and it's a, it's a monthly publication that you know, drummers are featured on the cover and then they're featured in interviews and stories inside. And I think my first feature was something like 1980. So it goes, it goes back to the early years of Modern Drummer magazine. And I was on the cover five different times. And um, it ha it's like a it's sort of a drum culture in a way. And, you know, I, 
in those days, if, if a fan had a question for me, they'd write a letter to Modern Drummer Magazine and then Modern Drummer Magazine would send it to me and, you know, and I could answer it individually or sometimes I'd answer it in the magazine. So I just, I had a very long relationship with, with the magazine and then they have readers polls and the readers would vote on, you know, favorite drummers. And I ended up winning a category five years in a row called all around drummer, which just means that, you know, I can play a lot of different styles and they musicians knew that I plays and rock, rock groups, jazz groups, fusion groups, you know, any, any kind of music. Um, so last, last year, they wanted to make a book that is a collection of all five cover stories, a new, new interview, um, photos that have never been published, like just lots and lots of stuff. The, the, so we ended up collaborating, Modern Drummer and, and I, and the book came out a couple months ago and it's called, you know, Modern Drummer Legend. And it's 250 pages long and it's really a lot of detail if you're inclined to know more about my career and an overview of my career and you can get it at moderndrummer.com you can get it on their website and you can get a print version or a pdf like digital version how does it make you feel i mean that, that's your peers man that's like that's like sitting there you know everyone's like hey you know because you they, they named you you're in the modern drummer a rock and roll hall of fame i believe and they're a drummer hall of fame you're you're right. in like you've been named like the top one of the top 25 drummers of all time. I mean, how does that make you feel when it's, it's not, it's, it's your peers, man. It's the people, as you said, people would take time back then and write you a letter and younger people, we used to have to do that. If we wanted to get a note to someone, we'd have to write a letter and we'd hope they get them because you couldn't find like anyone's address, like email now, like, you, you know, but what does that like make you feel, <laughs> must make you feel amazing because it's your peers are saying this guy knows what the hell he's doing in all aspects it it's meant a lot to me over the years it it had that that getting recognition by the readers of modern drummer is has been you know it's been pr pretty important to me because i feel like these are well mostly the readers are going to be drummers and and they are they spend the time listening to music and thinking about the drums and talking about it. So to be respected in, in that, you know, by that crowd, it feels good. It feels really good to, to get that kind of recognition. Now, if you look at your website, it talks about the year 2016, how much stuff you did that year. Uh, I don't, you probably remember like the, the, the solo fabric of rhythm. Tell my listeners, I mean, it's amazing how much stuff you did. And to top it all, oh, you just you just do a concert with Journey after you're doing all this incredible stuff. Tell the people about that 2016. Well, well that's, that, yeah, that's the way the book starts. It's actually the first, about the first page of the book is, is posted on my vitalinformation.com website. And, and there was a period, it was in early 2016, where I knew I had a six month tour with Journey coming up. So I, I wanted to do a solo album, like literally a drum solo album, 14 solo drum set pieces. So I booked studio time and I did that, which took, you know, 
took about a week, you know, maybe two weeks, the whole thing, you know, to record it and mix it. And then I wanted to do a new Vital Information album, so I booked studio time and we had wrote music and I made a Vital Information album. There's a band that I've worked with since 1986 off and on called Steps Ahead, very high-level jazz group. And we made an album with the WDR Big Band. It's a German radio big band. And so I went to Cologne, Germany, and and recorded an album with the members of Steps Ahead and an entire big band. And then I played at Birdland Jazz Club for a week with my organ trio, because I have a, you know, another one of my groups is an organ trio called the Groove Blue Organ Trio. And then I played my first gig with Journey after about, I don't know how many years of not touring with them over 30 years and it was at madison square garden <laughs> so, it was a pretty busy like two or three months there what was it like playing with them at that time when they had a new singer was that was that something different i mean was that for you because you've known steven and it's it's the front man i always and i always had said you know i mean it's i i saw journey as i said at the spectrum i saw journey with steven to me I, I just, I wouldn't, it's different. It's just, I'm a, I'm a old school realist. I'm like, ah, it's not the same as, you know. But what was it like for you as a drummer, sit there and look and go, holy crap, there's a different guy up there. Right. Um, I think Arnell does a great job. And, you know, he does a really great job in a very high pressure situation. And he's a he's a he's a very good guy. I think he's an incredible frontman and entertainer. So I, it was it's inter, you know it was very interesting to play that music uh, with essentially the you know that original lineup, but with but with him you know with Arnell, and uh, I think he does a great job. So I was happy to work work with him and to support him, you know, because that's what I do. As a drummer, I'm supporting the singer. I'm playing the music and and uh, and giving him that kind of support that he needs. So, yeah, it was it was interesting and rewarding. Now, did it mean a lot to you when you were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Because once again, I mean, you're already in the Drummer Hall of Fame, which for a drummer, <laughs> I'd, I'd be like, yeah, you know what? I'd rather be in the Drummer Hall of Fame because that's the. But what was it like getting inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Yeah, in fact, you're right. It was like a little more interesting for me to be in the drummer <laughs> hall of fame. But I didn't have uh, expectations of being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And, and in fact, when when it came up, I didn't really know what to make of it. You know, I just because I didn't know anything about it. But it was an interesting event to be a part of. And once I was there at the event and we were witnessing the, the other bands being inducted and hearing the other groups playing. It was, it was pretty exciting. It was the same night that we were inducted. It was Electric Light Orchestra, Joan Baez, and Yes, and uh, Pearl Jam. So it was, it was very cool. And I, and I feel like the main people that it speaks to are the fans. I think the fans get a lot out of it because they, you know, the 
people that like the music of Journey, the listeners, they they want to see the band in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So so it was interesting and it was fun for me. And I think it was an important step for the fan base. Now in August, you have a drummer all-star show in the fantasy camp. Tell me about that. Cause I, I've seen, I know people who participate in rock and roll fantasy camp. And I think it's such a cool idea because, you know, people can sit there if they, when they go, they, they get to interact with people. They pretty much some pattern or style after, and then they get to meet them and play. How did you get involved with all that? Okay, well, this is not rock and roll fantasy camp. It's called drum fantasy okay. camp. And so it is really different because I've done rock and roll fantasy camp. And rock and roll fantasy camp is more about just kind of hobnobbing with with rock musicians. And, and you do get to play with them a little bit, you know, get because I did that. But, but drum fantasy camp, I'll say it's a little more serious for drummers to come and really learn about drumming. So it's 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 open to all ages and all ages and all levels come to drum fantasy camp. But the, but they come with expectations to go uh, to to learn a lot and then go away with uh, <laughs> a huge pile of homework to do and willingly do because they want to improve their drumming so it's a very different experience in rock and roll fantasy camp uh, and i've done it this uh, drum fantasy camp it's it's been going on for about 12 years and not that i do it every year but i do it most years if i can make it i'll do it because it's really fun and you and you mentioned there's there's other drummers there's simon phillips who's a great drummer um, Dave Weckl and Mark Juliana. So every year there's a slightly different lineup and in the camaraderie of us hanging out and, and with the students that come and it's approximately 60 or more people come and it's a five day event. So it's a lot happens, it's very exciting. Now you said you lived in LA for a little bit, right? Yeah, just for a few months. Did you ever get to play at the Baked Potato? Because I used to have jam nights. I was just wondering, it used to be where a lot of guys would play there. It was like, it was on Ventura. <clears throat> I don't think I ever played the baked potato. I did go there a few times to see people, but I never played there. Okay. I was just wondering, because I always think, you know, they used to have a jam night for all different, really great musicians. Now, I want to ask yep. you, because, you know, and as I said earlier, I talked to some actors, and when you say, you know, do you like comedy better or drama? And they always say, well, if we're acting, we're acting. For you, what <laughs> what is your... What is your, do you have a preference of, of a drumming style to do? I mean, do you, is jazz your main and like rock second? I mean, or is it all as long as you're drumming and as you're behind your kit, you're a happy guy? Something, what you just said, if I'm behind my kit, I'm a happy guy. There is something to that. Um, but, you know, given, given the choice, I prefer playing jazz and, and playing you know, playing rock has it's has it's a skill that I've developed, and I can do it well, and it's enjoyable. But it it it's not the same as playing jazz, where 
I'm improvising and and making music with other musicians that needs to be different every single night. So there's something about, you know, with like in a way you could look at, you know, in a compared to actors playing on tour with a with a rock band is is like being on tour in a musical. And it's you know, the music's written, the parts are fixed, and you breathe life into it every night. And you you make it believable <laughs> that this is really exciting and really fun. You know, that's that's a skill to be able to do that. But to to play with jazz musicians there's we play songs we may play the same songs every night but we'll never playing the same way twice and 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 that freedom and and that you know what can happen with the with that kind of music is much more compelling to be involved with now do you still practice a lot like, I mean, I mean, I'm sure you practice when you're getting ready, but it must be like, do you get up and still practice every day, even though, you know, it's six and how long do you practice for? Or is it, it just, it amazes me because you think, and, and it's true. Everyone, a good, anyone who's good at something always knows they can get better. And no matter, it's right. always, but what is like, like, do you get up in the morning and practice? What's your practice schedule? Yeah, I, I don't practice right away, but I might, by 11 o'clock or so, I'll be in the practice room, putting in two, three hours. And it's not straight. I'm, you know, I'll take breaks, but it's, it's like you say, to get better, but it's also, there's maintenance involved as well. It's a, it's a physical instrument and, and without daily maintenance, the chops atrophy, <laughs> you know, I have to, have to keep, keep in shape. And, and, you know, work on new music and new ideas. So, yeah, I, I practice five to six days a week, two to three hours a day. Now, in September, you have some vital information shows coming up. Are you excited about that? They're in New York. It must be great. It's a Birdland Theater. Tell me what can people expect. Like, when you guys play, do you write... I'm sure you write a set list, but I'm sure sometimes when you get into the moment, a song probably goes from whatever five to ten. I'm just guessing because you sit there. What what can people expect when they come to these shows? Um. Well, first of all, I have a I have a new band, a new lineup, and I have a keyboard player from Cuba that lives in New York City, Manuel Galera, and I I worked with him a little bit before the pandemic hit but then of course <laughs> we had to stop touring in uh, March of 2020 and a new bass player Yannick Guizdala who's from England and now living in LA so um, and we're we're going to go out as a trio and what people can expect to hear are very high level virtuoso players playing music that it's not that it's not necessarily that abstract or anything it's pretty can be pretty straightforward with r&b kind of you know rock grooves and but could be straight ahead 
swing, but but the music gets creative and gets and, ex, and and we expand on it. And it's like any jazz experience when people come to hear jazz musicians, they they want to be transported by their by their skill level. In some ways, it's like for me, it's like when I watch high level athletes at the Olympics. You know, you may not know, you know, the details of of what the sport is, but you can't deny when somebody's really good at what they do. And and I think that's you know, that's the draw for me of of jazz musicians is sort of an undeniable command of the instrument and command of music. And then we look for transcendence in a way. You know, we look to play together in a way that we can can connect with each other and and then go beyond the typical experience of what life is like in a day-to-day way. It's like you we get we can we can transcend that and 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 there's times, of course, when we can take the audience with us. So, so you you kind of lose your bearings of your day to day life, and then just transcend your experience and and have some kind of really interesting experience. Which is why, which is so what's so great about the arts is like when I go to see a, a play, a great play, or go to see a great musical. You know, you forget about everything and you just get absorbed in what's going on. And and that's what we strive for when we play. I have one final question. And I've always wondered this. And I talk to drummers and I never really ask them. The drum solo. Okay. Do drum solos, when you start, and I'm guessing when you're with a rock band, if you play a drum solo, it has a certain time frame. But when you start playing a drum solo, when you're improvising, when you first hit that first beat, you know you're going to go into the solo. Do you, are you planning ahead of where you're going? Like, okay, I'm going to get here, or does it just, does your body just get taken over by your talent and just the feeling, and then you just f- basically free form into some kind of beauty? Well, interesting question because there's a there's a drum drumming website called Drumio. It's kind of like Netflix for drummers. You can, you know, join Drumio and and watch all this content, uh, drum educational content. Well, I just made a course on drum soloing, and uh, it's just coming out now. And I I like talk about that. In general, there's five kinds of drum solos that I am familiar with and that I use. And so one type is the drum feature. And that would be like what you said in a rock show. Like, you know, there, here, here's a song and now the drummer's going to take a solo. And, and that has a certain form, you know, form to it. Like you could go all the way to like Neil Peart that played with, with Rush. Like he, he had a drum solo that he wrote and composed ahead of time. And then he, could, he would play that same solo exactly note for note at a Rush show each night now in in my situation i have a, a a structure in mind but i'll play a different solo but with key points like a kind of just kind of a more or less a structure 
So that's one one kind of a solo. Another kind of solo is is uh, playing a drum solo over a vamp. So so sometimes a a, a band will get into uh, a vamp situation. A classic example is Take Five, where there's a repeating bass line, ba boom 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 boom, and then the drum solo is over that. So you have that reference. The listener and the drummer has the reference to hear that vamp, and then there's a solo over that. So this takes discipline to stay within that vamp. And then there's another kind of solo, which is soloing over a form of a song. So a song has a particular form. And 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 to play the form of the song while alone, completely alone, the other musicians drop out, but I still hear the melody in my head and play in that form. That's a third kind of a solo. So it's not just like letting go. It's like being very focused and concentrating on not losing the form and not changing the time, keeping the time straight. And then there's the kind of solo that's a more avant-garde solo, a free form like very free and loose kind of, kind of solo. And, um, and then a fifth kind of is what I did on my solo record, which is a standalone compositional solo that has drum thematic material in it. But then, but the song has, I mean, the song is a drum solo, but it's got structure and thematic material that you can recognize. You'll you'll hear it, and I may go away from it and then come back to it, like a kind of like a drum hook, so to speak. So I, you know, I got into a lot of detail about that. So all of that can happen in a concert. You know, all all of the above. That's awesome. <laughs> you know? And you know, it's funny because I, I just I saw uh, Chicago the other night, and they had a big drum solo, and they had the two. The percussionists and they're switching off. And I always wonder, you know, I know it's planned in the song, and theirs looked planned because they were doing it. They, of course, had to be because they were playing together. But I always wondered, so that, see that? And now, now, what's that website people can go to? Drumeo. Okay. That's it. Drumeo. Cool. Well, man, I want to thank you for coming on. As I said, I, I saw you at JFK. I saw you at the Spectrum. I've been listening to Vital Information. Is there anything else you want to uh, promote before we go? Uh, you you pretty much hit hit everything. I mean, there is um, a re-release of the first four Vital Information albums. It's called the Complete Columbia Recordings. So this this just came out. It's uh, Wounded Bird Records licensed the first four Vital Information records from Sony, and uh, you can get it on Amazon or wherever. You can get it on my website, and and I'll sign it for you. So vitalinformation.com, you can check that out. Thank you, Steve. Now, people, check that website out. It's a great website. You get a lot of info there, and you can get the link to the uh, Modern Drummer magazine. You can just go to his website. Go to vitalinformation.com. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 915 episodes. Uh, you can email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. Um, Twitter at coopertalk. Instagram at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.